Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and I'm here with Spike's Deputy Editor and host of The Last Orders Podcast, Tom Slater. Hello, hello. And Spike columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. This week on the podcast, the US midterms, the Grenfell effigy and the problem with killing off Apu. And last night, the Republican Party defied history to expand our Senate majority. And we saw the candidates that I supported achieve tremendous success last night. Thanks to you, tomorrow will be a new day in America. Almost all congratulations to those dynamic, diverse, incredible candidates. So the results of the midterms are in. The Democrats regain the House while the Republicans strengthen their grip on the Senate. Despite no obvious blue wave or Trump bump, both sides are claiming victory. Tom, who's right to say they won this? Uh, Neither is probably the cleanest way to talk about it. As you say, both sides have already declared victory on the basis of the fact that the Democrats have projected to take about 28 seats at least in the House. Uh, The Republicans have strengthened their majority in the Senate. It's expected to go up from 51 to 54. Um, But at the same time, in terms of the Democrat surge, at least, this is nothing particularly significant, at least historically speaking. I mean, it was a fair bit smaller than when they last flipped the House in 2006. It was about half the size of the swing to Republicans in 2010, two years into Obama's presidency. So it was a blow to Trump, definitely, um, not least because he really did make it all about him, certainly in the closing weeks, but it wasn't the kind of shellacking that um, Obama referred to in 2010. I think the more interesting thing is when you kind of look into which seats were won and how. So you saw the Democrats taking governorships in places like Wisconsin and Michigan, which of course Trump won in 2016, that's significant. But at the same time, you also saw the Republicans take governorships in places like Ohio, in places like Florida, Iowa. These are also crucial swing states. But when it comes down to voters, what's really interesting is that you're you're seeing, again, the kind of process of realignment continuing to happen on some level. So really the Democratic gains were built off of not them winning back their working class heartlands, but eating more into the suburbs. Um, the Romney Republican voters, um, white women with college degrees in particular, whilst at the same time the Republicans are really firming up their support amongst rural voters in particular. And if you think about its gains in the Senate, that all those ones that were really in contention and the Republicans ended up taking off of the Democrats. If you think about Indiana, Missouri, North Dakota, these again were all very rural places. So I think what we're really seeing, not much has changed perhaps, but beneath the surface, you're really seeing the ground starting to shift a little bit. And, you know, whilst both sides can kind of claim victory, I think the the broader story is about how these parties are kind of realigning or at least de-aligning a lot of the old loyalties and kind of constituencies they used to represent. And that's interesting, if nothing else. One way this midterms has been described for a long time is the year of the women. um, And it's been described as that since Canada started running. Uh, Ella, do you want to tell us a bit about that? Uh, Yeah, lots of the reports I've read have been focused around the fact that uh, the results have been an all time high number of women running for Congress. Uh, I think it's at least 98 elected to the House, 84 Democrats, 
14 Republicans. And you can pick out individuals uh, like the much focused on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in New York. Uh, There's also quite significant facts like more non-incumbent women have elected than ever before. So, you know, on the face of it, 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 there is something to talk about, about the fact that there has been a surge of uh, women. Certainly there's been reports about the fact that more women got involved in fundraising, more women were involved in phone banking. But I mean, the interesting thing about it and what Sean Collins touched on in his article for Spiked this week, there's not anything necessarily positive about this. I mean, the real products of this female surge will be seen in the the test of time. It, It all was about what these women will do. And actually, there's a sort of broader point to be made um, that Sean makes, which is that there's a sort of deepening of the culture war. So the more focus is put on this women's surge, which, you know, while significant, is still not exactly the main event of the day. Um, And at the same time, Trump uh, becomes more Trump, the Democrats and these Democrat women become more uh, PC, right on, uh, we're going to win it for the women sort of thing. Just as an example, I mean, there was much noise made about the Democrat Sharice Davids, who beat the Republican Kevin Yoder in Kansas. Now, the big fuss is because she is both an out lesbian and uh, a Native American. So this is sort of a first. But what will she do uh, for LGBT rights or for women? I mean, Kansas has one of the worst abortion laws in the US. Women have to uh, be forced to have an ultrasound and wait 24 hours before they're allowed to make any decision. So will she do something about that? This is all to be seen. So it's fine having a surge of women, but what will these women do? And I think just to sort of bolt onto that, I think it's interesting that at least in the commentary, so many people are reaching for kind of identity politics to kind of to, for something to celebrate. You know, as you say, the diversity, um, the more women candidates. Um, there were two Muslim women who were elected to Congress this time around, and that's a first. And that's all very well and good. But what's interesting, I think the focus on it in the commentary just speaks to a problem that I think the Democrats have had for quite a long time, which is the more that they have this identity crisis and the more they don't really know what it is they're supposed to stick up for. Are they supposed to go back after the people in rural Ohio who have abandoned them or are they supposed to embrace this new metropolitan coalition? The more that identity crisis deepens, the more they kind of reach to identity politics as a weird kind of gloss, as a way that they can kind of say that they're making wonderful progress just via the candidates that they're putting forward. And then if you think again about some of the Democratic, you know, celebrities almost would be heartthrobs, all of which have not done particularly well. You know, Beto O'Rourke in Texas, Andrew Gillum in Florida, Stacey Abrams in Georgia, although at the time recording that race remains very, very close. A lot of those people who are being put forward pretty hastily, I think it's fair to say, is the future of the Democratic Party, <laughs> um, the next presidential candidate, etc. They did well, but and the large part came short of the mark but again it just feels like in every instance the default position is to just talk about how wonderful and diverse they are which is again all well and good in and of itself but it doesn't get to grips with the fact that the democrats at this point despite trump despite everything still don't really know what it is they're supposed to be all about just on better o'rourke for a second i mean as you said he was touted as a future presidential candidate a lot of the excitement did seem to come from outside of Texas, outside of where the race was actually happening. And in fact, uh, Beto O'Rourke was the number one Google search in the UK at one point this week, which just goes to show that actually, you know, you can generate all this excitement from complete outsiders that doesn't really translate into any kind of electoral gain. And what the Beto O'Rourke case in particular really shows is just the distance between the sentiment in the media and what the voters actually want. Going back to the kind of culture wars uh, question and identity politics, 
there's a case to be made that it didn't really work for either side this time. All of the Democratic senators in tight races who voted against Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation, who basically got tangled up in this whole row over Me Too and sexual assault, lost their seats. And the only one who stuck up for Kavanaugh actually kept his seat. But at the same time, there's also a case to be made that many of the most Trump-esque candidates who are the strongest at fear-mongering around immigration, um, around the caravan, also fared fairly badly. So perhaps the culture wars isn't just isn't quite cutting it in um, American elections today. No, I think that's probably a correct assessment. I mean, it's the same how we've got, we often say here in the UK that the political establishment is completely out of step with what the public wants. You only have to look at Brexit to see that. And I think a similar thing is happening in the US. I mean, the positive strain that was within the Trump vote was this vote for change was a vote against the establishment for something big and better in politics. Obviously, Trump has failed to do that because he hasn't made any great material change. And really, as you see with this, him turning turning the midterms into sort of a referendum on himself. It's all about him. It's all about his kind of, he's really digging his heels into this, um, to be this Trumpian figure, you know, incredibly anti-immigrant, incredibly anti the media, you know, just seeing what he's done with the CNN reporter. But at the same time, as Tom said, the Democrats are, rather than putting forward any positive political challenges to Trump, they're sort of just touting themselves as the non-Trump party, you know, the non-Trump candidates, the resistance, all of that. And then you have to see that American voters are sort of left in a stalemate saying, well, no one's really giving me anything new. And so, you know, and so who do we vote for? It's a matter of kind of playing around with identity politics rather than politics with the big P. So it it is sort of depressing, I think. Yeah, I think just back onto that, I think it would be a little bit short of the mark to say that the cultural wars didn't play any role in this election. I mean, they obviously they play a role in every American (laughs) election. But what's interesting is how much they're kind of changing. You know, previously, it would be very much about, or at least the main things we would be talking about would be abortion guns etc what we're seeing is a kind of shifting in the culture wars it's kind of changing shape the issues are slightly different so at the beginning of the campaign at a rally in montana trump said this is going to be the election that's about kavanaugh the caravan law and order and common sense um and although at times he definitely drove that into very dark xenophobic areas i think there is as you say fraser in terms of those democratic senators who lost um and it seems like their vote against kavanaugh was definitely a factor in that that's definitely taking place similarly um, Claire McCaskill, the moderate Democrat in Missouri who lost her seat, also felt the need to kind of ape Trump on migration towards the end of the campaign. She was putting out ads talking about, I'm not one of those crazy Democrats and kind of, you know, mirroring some of his lines about the border. So it feels like the new issues are things around is around a kind of Me Too-ish issue. You know, has that gone too far? That seems to be quite high in people's minds. But also I think what's strange is that the, Trump is almost becoming his own kind of culture war in a strange kind of way, insofar as politics increasingly polarising. Are you on the side of Trump, or at least are you on the side that pisses off the establishment? Or are you on the side of, you know, moral goodness and the, um, <laughs> on the, <laughs> on the right side of history, as the Democrats might present it? And I think, on the one hand, that's interesting. It at least kind of politicises that schism in a potentially more useful way, insofar as it's about politics, not just about cultural issues. But at the same time, I think it makes it really, really fragile. And, and Sean made this point in his article this week, which is to say that that populist upsurge that was bound up in the Trump vote, um, it's always going to be fragile because it's attached to this very unpredictable, flawed, and in some respects, grim candidate. So what do the midterms mean for 2020? 
Well, I think the one thing that we've got to take away from the midterms, despite the fact that as we talked about at the top, you know, this was hardly a roaring victory for either side, is how significant it is that at this point in time, Trump is still nowhere near being defeated. He is a candidate who's been presented by the Democratic establishment as the most morally repugnant um, politician in US political history. Um, there have been there's been incredible mobilisation just, you know, in, in effect off the back of revulsion at Trump. And yet, as we talked about at the beginning, the Republicans didn't do so badly in this race. And this was a race that was explicitly all about him and both sides were definitely playing that card. So whilst at the same time we've talked a lot about how Trump has in some respects degraded the opportunity for a kind of populist upsurge in America because it is all based around him, I don't think anyone can really be complacent about the fact that for all his flaws and prejudices even, um, he still remains pretty popular and I think that speaks more than anything to the corrosion of the political establishment it's cluelessness at this Mm. point and it's willingness to just fire off the handle not just at Trump but at the people who vote for him and I think the longer that that goes on um, the longer this incredibly flawed individual will limp on in American politics who knows maybe even past 2020. You're listening to the Spike podcast if you're enjoying the show why not give us a rating and a review it really helps new listeners find the show. Earlier this week, a video emerged of a model Grenfell Tower being burned on a bonfire. Six men have since been arrested under public order laws, and their homes have been raided in an investigation. The Grenfell effigy has been widely condemned, including by the Prime Minister and survivors of the fire, some of whom have called for it to be treated as a hate crime. Ella, this video is clearly offensive, but should it be a crime to make a sick joke like this? Absolutely not. Even to put it this way, I'm more scandalised by what's happened to these guys than I was scandalised by the content of that video. And that's saying a lot because the video was really upsetting, Mm. really, really offensive. I don't think offensive is even a strong enough word for it. They've, you know, mock burnt non-white Culloden people. Uh, They laughed. They kind of made little of the fact that so many people died in Grenfell. You can't imagine a more debased and gross thing. But, I mean... The police getting involved in a group of individuals doing something in the privacy of their own backyard and sharing it in the privacy of a WhatsApp group, Mm. um, which was leaked. Uh, So, you know, like at Lumpet, this was a private interaction between individuals and they have now been harassed by the police and harassed by the law. I think that is really, really terrible. I think you have to separate off the understandable emotional reaction to this and the sort of horror that people have because it's in relation to Grenfell and that is so so recent and so raw and say it is a scandal that the police are harassing individuals in society and and you know moving towards a situation in which we live in a police state. I've, I've been shocked by what some commentators and politicians have called for uh, with just essentially the harassing of individuals by the armed wing of the state. Mm. I mean, you cannot get more terrifying than police, you know, putting you in jail for something you did in your back garden. I completely agree with everything others said there. I think the, the thing that's most striking about this is that we get this response to whenever you basically get a handful of racist scumbags doing something entirely objectionable, is the fact that we seem to have lost the ability to condemn that kind of behaviour, that kind of language, without also saying they should definitely be arrested. Mm. And also, everyone's probably a bit like this on the quiet. That was the other kind of response that you saw on Twitter, in the media, was the idea that this is really the tip of the iceberg. There's a certain... I hate to say it, kind of salacious glee that I think some commentators leap on examples like this because it fits their narrative, both post-Brexit and before it, which is that most 
people out there, even if they don't always show it, even if they just keep it to themselves in the privacy of a you know back garden bonfire night celebration, um, are deeply racist, terrible individuals. And I think that's one thing that's been really horrendous about this is that it's really hammered home the fact that today the measure of a good anti-racist is not just that you're opposed to racism in all forms, that you don't think there should be any you know, legal inequality, that you don't think people should be subjected to racist abuse and that you should effectively mobilise around those issues. It's whether or not that you, want, you fear the general public and also whether or not you're quite keen on censorship as mm. a means to punish people who you find objectionable. I think the other thing that's quite strange is that we talked so much recently about how crap the police are being in relation to so many things, violent crime, and it was really striking, I think, that um, pretty much the day after the effigy story broke, there was a 16-year-old boy also in South London, which is where I understand this effigy was burnt, who became the fifth person in six days um, to die of a stabbing in London. And yet, when it comes to a handful of kind of racist scumbags doing something objectionable in their back garden, the police are on it instantly. So I think it's one of those things where people look on this and not only have those free speech concerns, but also you know, wonder what's going on here, really. Just on the police, I mean, it's incredibly disappointing. Literally, on Monday, I wrote about, in Spiked, the police chiefs who were coming out saying that they're dealing with far too many hate incidents, quote-unquote, that they're fed up with policing people's Twitter, they're fed up with dealing with, you know, minor sort of racist insults and things like that where they basically have to go out on call. Around 90,000 of these non-crime hate incidents happen every year. And then the next day, something like this happens and the police decide they have to investigate and they're all over it. You know, it was potentially quite good news that the police were thinking of basically ignoring speech and, you know, not going after expression. But then the next day, as soon as something outrageous happens, it's a complete turnaround, a complete fault fast. It's really interesting, the shifting relationship to the police. I mean, uh, you can a few years ago, you know, the sort of slogan of many on the left was a cab or cops are bastards. Mm. And uh, while that was infantile, I think I probably preferred it to what's coming up now, uh, which is this repositioning of the police as your big brother, your best <laughs> friend who are going to protect you from things like this. And more importantly, is like a parent is going to intervene when things get out of hand and solve issues for you. I mean, you know, you would not find me weeping if this these guys uh, one evening came out of a pub and found themselves accosted by a few people and learnt their lesson that mm. way. Uh, or if they got some, uh, you know, unpleasant letters through the mail from their neighbours. There are ways in which we deal with things like this with racist scumbags, with people who are outside of the norm, you know, it has to be said, and who do bad things in society without running off to the state to look to intervene for us. I mean, it sort of destabilises the power of communities to do things for themselves and to act and to form values. If you are, your answer to difficult situations is always call the police, put them in jail, make it illegal, it sort of just shows the complete disempowerment, really, of individuals to to handle things and to deal with stuff. I mean, the idea for me, the idea that you would ever call the police unless your life was in danger or unless someone had been stabbed or, you know, you'd been robbed, no, no money left or something. That's what the police are for, not, as you say, for dealing with bad behaviour and bad opinions. Well, yeah, and it's in not many years at all, the police have been transformed from, in, in a way, the enforcers of state racism to apparently the people we should look to to deal with racism. Yeah. And it, it's, it's completely bizarre. But it's, it's PR. I mean, that's the yeah. other thing. I mean, that, that's the thing about it is that obviously kind of post-McPherson report, they've basically been on the PR offensive. Mm. I mean, that's why they jumped on top of this because it yeah. was a wonderful opportunity to demonstrate their anti-racism. Um, and 
the problem is, again, it was almost like coming back to what we said earlier, the way in which the police demonstrate they're committed to anti-racism is by effectively clamping down on free speech. That seems to be the picture that we've got from the attempts to really clamp down on hate crime, the expansion of hate crime to include, you know, online speech, or mm. in this case, kind of expression in your own back garden. All of this has basically been an attempt to kind of sort out their image. And even on the left, amongst people who would, you know, historically be sceptical if not if not hostile to the police they're kind of going along with it at the very least they're demanding this kind of action from the police themselves and in the process giving the state more power over us um, than they otherwise would have so it's a, it's a real mess um, and I think the thing we've really got to do is separate out these parts which is to say having solidarity with the people of Grenfell or being anti-racist through and through does not mean that you have to go along with this line which is to say that all of our other liberties must be dissolved um, and that we have to partake in this narrative which is that the public are the problem rather than anyone else the public are full of these brutish idiots um, rather than it being aberrant behavior and I think now we really need to kind of separate out those things because not only is it going to further encroach on everyone's freedoms but I think it also is going to really degrade anti-racism into something which it really shouldn't be. You're listening to the Spike podcast. Spiked has no paywalls and no subscriptions. It's contributions from listeners and readers like you that keeps us fighting for freedom and democracy. If you'd like to support Spiked, just go to spiked-online.com and hit the donate button. Producers of The Simpsons have reportedly decided to drop the long-running character Apu from the show. The controversy over Apu was ignited by the comedian Hari Kondabolu with his film The Problem with Apu, which claims, among other things, that having a white voice actor, Hank Azaria, voice a stereotypical Indian is a modern form of blackface. But is there really a problem with Apu, or is the bigger problem with killing him off? I think it's a real shame uh, that Apu is being killed off, not least because the outrage about him is so recent, uh, Mm. and he's a character that has been around, Mm. as I understand, for a very long time. So you have to sort of be sceptical about this recent damning of Apu as sort of the cartoon equivalent of blackface, because... You know, he wasn't a problem for uh, generations before us. But more importantly, I think we've lost sight of the fact that The Simpsons is a cartoon. And if you look at the character list of The Simpsons, stereotypes abound. And I don't mean in a bad way. I mean, in a way that cartoon and Mm. sometimes political cartoon, because, you know, especially in the early uh, series, some of The Simpsons episodes were quite, you know, erudite in terms of political commentary. But more importantly, they were funny. And like, take Willie, the heavy drinking, ultra macho, stereotyped Scottish guy. (laughs) I mean, if you were Scottish, I can imagine you might take offence to that. How about Bumblebee Man, who Lou Perez wrote about for Spiked this week, which is, as he claims, another stereotype. I mean, you could get offended by anything, really. Mm. And I think that is not a decent excuse to kill off a character like Apu. I mean, the Simpsons can do what they like, but I think it's a shame that they seem to have bowed to the pressure of this very recent sort of outrage mob. I I mean, I actually watched the film um, The Problem with Apu. Apu is basically held up as responsible for the difficulties Hari Kondabolu's parents faced. It's held up as responsible for him being bullied at, at, at school. It gives a very one-sided take, obviously, because there have been a lot of Indian Americans, especially working class ones, who work in convenience stores, who say, no, Apu is a is a hero to us. And um, just to sort of pick up on what Ella said as well, I mean, if you 
if you get this kind of doctrinaire about stereotypes and how they shouldn't be used <laughs> in any circumstances, you can't really have cartoons in yeah. a way. I mean, they're built on stereotypes in some sense. I mean, if you think about even Homer Simpson, he is this kind of white, working-class, blue-collar idiot. You know, mm. Nate could could have been a Trump supporter. That's the kind of, you yeah. know, impression that you get. There are this kind of series of stereotypes. And one of the things that The Simpsons did so well and why it kind of became so much more in the cartoon and became so beloved was that it also managed to transcend that. A lot of these characters had a lot of depth. And I think what's interesting about Apu is the the outpouring of affection for him has been really quite genuine because of the fact that he's been a character who's been around for a very long time, has had his own storylines. There was an interesting piece I read in The Guardian, which was talking about even through that character kind of pushed back against some of the kind of stereotypes and jokes that were in there. You know, one bit where I think Homer is um, saved. Um, he stops going to church and then he falls asleep and his house sets on fire. And he's saved by a kind of volunteer fire crew of various different religions and the priest goes around and goes you've been saved by everyone from jew to a christian to points to Apu and says miscellaneous <laughs> and he hits back hindu there are 700 million of us you know it's the thing that he's not a one-sided character he's not there just to kind of you know um be there with his hilarious accent he was a character with real depth but in the world of cartoons you do deal in broad brushstrokes you do deal in stereotypes and it's a particularly joyless um blinkered kind of person who can see that and only see like Al Jolson. I mean, that's just fundamentally not what's going on. And I think it again just speaks to how, you know, joyless society becomes when you become this black and white about culture in this respect. And, what, and what's funny is that Hari Kondavolu has now rode back a bit. Now that now that it's, you know, emerged that Apu is going to be killed off, he's, he said, oh no, you know, why are they killing him off? They could have done something else. But, you know, when you make these kinds of pronouncements, when you say that this character is so racist and so objectionable and you expect to be listened to what else do people expect is going to happen well it seems like his argument is the fact that you know as bad as it was at least it was some representation (laughs) or something like that but again you get you know you if you go around effectively pretty unfairly to put it lightly comparing Mm. the simpsons um to some sort of racist program um from accusing the voice actor hank azaria of effectively doing blackface you can't be surprised when they turn around and take these things off and i think it actually gets the thing the more touchy you get about representation and sort of diversity in culture the more difficult it actually is for a lot of people to do it it makes it more of a minefield it makes Mm. it more you know more of a touchy enterprise than it need be and i think in the case of apu seeing as you've seen the kind of outpouring of sympathy for him a lot of it from um, indian americans themselves i think it just bears that out in this case and where does it end i mean that's the other question you can take any not just cartoons you can take what the kind of fury over cultural appropriation in literature a representation in films i mean where does it end if you want to look for racial stereotypes you can find them i mean mm. harry potter beloved by children worldwide has a character called Seamus Finnegan who you know where I'm going with this who (laughs) continuously blows himself and others up Mm, is that a bit of an Irish stereotype and is a kind of thick mick now you could get really upset about that if you wanted to I think you are really upset about that maybe but (laughs) but my point is if you want to look for stuff like this you will find it and I think it's really significant that for decades no one had a problem with apu and that wasn't because people were blind to racism because it was in you know previous years when racism might have been more pronounced than it was today it's just very funny that when you live in a more free society than ever suddenly you find racism and prejudice everywhere you've been listening to the spike podcast if you've enjoyed the podcast why not give us a rating a review or even a donation for more spike content Go to spiked-online.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.